Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, before we jump in, I just want to say thank you so much to all those who have pre-ordered my book, How to Talk to Kids About Anything. I am so appreciative and I cannot wait till you see it. For those who are interested, you can go to Amazon or anywhere that books are sold and pre-order my book today. Thank you. Now, many would agree that most teenagers are emotional. Sometimes those emotions are worn on the sleeve while others, well, they're more covert, but they're still present. How do we understand our teenagers' intense and often fraught emotional lives? And how do we support them through this critical developmental stage? For that, we have the pleasure of having the fabulous Lisa Damore back on our show today. Recognized as a thought leader by the American Psychological Association, Lisa Damore, PhD, co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast, writes about adolescence for the New York Times, appears as a regular contributor to CBS News, works in collaboration with UNICEF, and maintains a clinical practice. She is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety. And girls, we had Lisa on the show to discuss us that book. She has a new book out and it is called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents, which is the number one new release in popular adolescent psychology on Amazon. She and her husband have two daughters and live in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Welcome back, Dr. Lisa DeMore, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you. And thank you for having me back. I love your show. Well, thank you very much. You've been a huge supporter and I really appreciate it. And thank you for the blurb for my book, which is not coming out until September, but I'm so excited that your blurb will be in how to talk to kids about anything. So thank you. It's a great book and I am honored to support it. Thank you so very much. It means everything to me. And I'm here to support your book because it's awesome. I just finished reading it. But before we dive in, for those who are just meeting you, haven't heard the last podcast, can you tell us one thing that really lights you up and what got you so interested in writing a book about the emotional lives of teens? I think what really lights me up is the belief that the best thing we can do for teenagers is to strengthen their relationships with the adults right around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's true, whether it's parents, teachers, coaches, mentors, anyone. Um, some kids are going to need psychotherapy. We want to make sure they have access to it. If they do, a lot of kids' needs are going to be met either in the preventative mental health or in actually helping them handle hard things by the adults who are right there. And so that, if you take all my work and say like, what is the thrust of all of my work? It is in that space between adult and teenager, trying to help adults understand teenagers because they operate on their own lines um, and then trying to help adults be more useful to teenagers. And so the reason for this book was we just came through, we are in the midst of, right? An adolescent mental health health crisis in the wake of the pandemic. Um, I... I'm very aware that adults are frightened for teenagers, very anxious about teenagers. And so my aim in writing this book was to try to do two things. One, hopefully to be very reassuring that a lot of what people are looking at is actually normal adolescence. And I think it's so hard to know post-pandemic because there is a lot of worry that the pandemic somehow broke all our kids. And there are a lot of headlines that are pretty harrowing. 
And so the good news, Robin, like luckily I was practicing for 20 plus years before the pandemic, taking care of teenagers. And so I hope people can believe me when I say, you know what, what we're looking at, it's forever and always been this way. This is normal adolescence, still very hard, but yes. nothing to be, you know, unduly concerned about. And then, so first to just offer reassurance and then to fully equip adults who are around teenagers to be very, very helpful to teenagers when they are having emotionally intense moments, which for teenagers is often. Yeah. You know, I, I'm so glad to read this. Uh, by the way, both my kids are in middle school. <sighs> so um, one of them is turning 14 and the other one's turning 13. So this book is for me. Thank you. <laughs> right up your Thank alley. you yeah. so very much. I was like, Lisa Damore, Lisa Damore over the last two days. I'm like, hello, Lisa Damore. All right. We're going to have some questions. Towards the beginning of the book, you say, and I noted this, for teenagers, powerful emotions are a feature, not a bug. I, I love that as a baseline. Can you tell us what you mean about that so that we can have a baseline for our discussion today? Sure, sure. So we have long known that teenagers feel their emotions more intensely than children do and more intensely than adults do. And this is just a straight up neurological phenomenon. It's just how their brains are developing and how their brains are remodeling and what's getting remodeled first, which is the emotion centers, which are very powerful compared to what gets remodeled later, which are the centers that help them to maintain perspective. And so it is utterly natural to adolescents that teenagers feel things intensely. And one thing that maybe we'll explore a little bit is this isn't just their negative emotions. They also enjoy things more. They have more vivid pleasures than happen at other times of life. And that can actually help them regulate negative emotions. Mm -hmm. But the goal really was to reassure parents of like, this is adolescence. This isn't your kid necessarily having a mental health problem. This isn't your kid necessarily suffering still from the pandemic that Anyone who has was caring for teenagers or raising teenagers prior to the pandemic can tell you there were moments in their home where their kids' really powerful emotions were dominating the scene, pretty overwhelming to everyone involved. And that was a Wednesday, right? Like there was nothing <laughs> special about it. That is life with teenagers. Yeah. And I really, I just am so aware that we're in a context that is very hard to know what to make of what is actually typical adolescent. And one of the things that I really try to do in all of my work and I try to do in this is to be very clear about when it's time to worry, because I think it's easier to take reassurance mm. about all of the typical disruption if I am as a writer and a psychologist saying, I will tell you when we get there and I will tell you exactly what it looks like in terms of when to be concerned, which I really try to do in this book mm -hmm. so that people can think, okay, the rest is a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. No, I really appreciate that. And you do actually talk about some myths about teenage emotion to prove your point that you're saying here that emotion's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that we have to protect them and step in and shield them or label them traumatized and fragile. Is that right? Exactly. And I'll see you and raise you. I would say if I had like a sub subtitle of this book, right? so the title is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers and then it's Raising Connected, Capable, Compassionate Adolescents. If there was a sub subtitle, it would be bringing distress back into the fold. Like mm. your kid's going to be upset. That is a done deal. You don't have to be too frightened of it. And even further, Adolescent distress is often evidence of their mental health, right? That they're having the right feeling at the right time. They should be upset about something. It is often orienting for them. It helps them make better decisions. Like, I don't want to do that again because I don't want to feel this way again. And it is often growth giving. Like they mature often yes. in the context of things that are not going well. And, right. and so it's it's really, as, as I think it through with you, I really see that it's two parts, like that it's both to have parents feel less anxious about the distress that is absolutely inherent to adolescence and in fact have them even feel more welcoming of it as a necessary and useful partner in their child's overall growth. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now we're kind of talking about adolescence in general right now 
but some people are listening and they're like, I have a teenage son and somebody's listening. I have a teenage daughter. Somebody's listening. They have a non-binary kid, whatever. We've all heard the stereotypes of the emotional teenage girl. You've certainly explored that so much in their last couple of books and the quiet sort of brooding, let me throw myself into video games and not talk to you, teenage boy. What would you say gender has to do with emotions? Does it matter? Are we supposed to pay attention to that? Great question, right? And so important. So here's the bottom line. At birth, there's no distinction to be made, right? There's nothing that biologically drives girls to be one way about emotion and boys to be another. But we have really good evidence, and I have a whole chapter of that evidence, on what happens at the level of socialization. And what we know is that by and large, and of course, this doesn't apply to all kids everywhere, but the broad strokes are we socialize girls to feel at ease talking about emotions. We also permit a great number of emotions in girls. And by and large, we socialize boys to be tough, um, invulnerable, and we permit a very small number of emotions in boys, largely um, anger and pleasure at someone else's expense, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the data show repeatedly. Um, and so what we're up against, whether we're socializing our kids that way or not, we're up against a culture in which those are norms that are established and those norms are going to influence, or at least our kids are going to bounce up against those norms. And then there's the question of kids who do not fit traditional gender binaries. And on the one hand, we don't have a ton of highly specific research about the emotional experience for them, other than that to say it's really hard to be a gender non-binary child. And we know this, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And so I also really tried to work through how we support gender non-binary kids or kids who don't fit the traditional gender categories um, as well as we possibly can. So we're going to try to, according to your book, help the boys to feel okay about discussing their emotions in, you know, this is a safe haven. Like we don't care about all that stuff that you're being fed about not talking like in our house, you have an example with uncle John and these other people, and maybe you have your dad here and, and talking it out is what we do. And for a, a girl, um, we, we, we are open to your emotions. Emotions are not bad. Um, and, and here are also some coping mechanisms <laughs> to deal with it. And for non-binary kids, we get to figure out our own rules. Let's hear them from you. Like what's going on. That's sort of what I get from, from reading your stuff that, you want kids to have to be able to talk about their emotions, no matter what their gender is, and feel comfortable expressing themselves because it is not the emotion that is bad. Is that correct? Absolutely. Right. That the way, you know, we psychologists think about emotion is incredibly agnostic. Like we're good with pretty much all of it. We, we don't, we fully expect that people are going to feel a wide range of emotions and what I really try to interrogate in the book is what gets in the way for girls of expressing some emotion, what gets in the mm -hmm. way for boys of expressing some emotions. And then, you know, and it really deserves its own treatment. You know, what is the experience for kids who don't fit traditional categories and how do we support them really well? And I think, um, you know, we have some data showing that for girls, expressing anger can be very costly. If you're a girl of color, expressing anger can be enormously costly, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to think about that's something that gets in the way. Mm -hmm. For boys, expressing vulnerability, expressing um, anything that is at all intimate or tender can be very quickly policed by their peers, seen yes. as somehow weak, seen as somehow vulnerable. And um, often it all gets sort of rolled up under seeming somehow feminine. And, and that's really right. um, an issue because right. if you're looking at fifth and sixth grade boys, right, when this is maybe starting to really gain traction that you can't, you got to be tough, not being girl-like takes on enormous proportions at that age as they're trying to consolidate a sense of masculinity. And you said something that I um, kind of stumbled across in my research for the book that felt to me so um, incredibly essential around the boy piece, which is... I hear so often from mothers where they're like, how do I get my son to talk to me? Mm -hmm. my, my boy has shut down. He's a sphinx. Yes. I can't get anything. How do I get him to talk to me? And it's of course like so right on and so well-meaning and so earnest. 
And my new answer, having read the book, written this book, written and then read it like a thousand times, a thousand thousand times, times, many times, is you need to find, you can keep trying to get your boy to talk to you and you should. What will also really help here is having the men in his life Mm. talk to him about his feelings and ask him about his feelings and talk to him about their feelings. Because one of the things we are really up against with boys is that act of talking about emotions has in their minds and not by accident become feminized. And so then when it's only the women in their life who are like, buddy, talk to me about your feelings, Uh it actually underscores this belief that this is in their words, like a girl thing to do. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, or maybe even ironically, moms and women working double time to try to get boys talking about their feelings may in fact have a backfiring effect of proving to boys, see, yeah, this is a girl thing, so I can't do it. So you were talking about how in your family and also the men around are doing this work around boys. Like that's really who needs to be on the front lines at this point. Agreed. And what a beautiful way of saying that, you know, having the example and realizing, hey, I respect my dad or I respect Uncle Joe or whomever, uh, this teacher or this coach, because we've got a lot of coaches listening to this show, that it makes a big difference to for them to be able to hang some emotion on, hey, buddy, like you, yeah, you you had this issue on the on the gymnastics mat, on the the sports field. Like And that's happened to me before. And when that happened, I felt disappointed, frustrated, yes, angry, but also like worried my teammates were going to be start using those words so that the the kids can say, oh, this coach who I revere, because we know they're all the superheroes in this kid's life uh, as we move over from parents or just don't get it. But my coach, now he knows what he's talking about, um, that that could make a huge difference. That's such an important thing. Thank you for that. Absolutely. No, and, and that was something I, I learned while working on the book. Mm-hmm. Now, something I circled, and that made me laugh out loud, probably because of where I am in life with my kids was, yes, obviously, the page where you wrote, um, why your kid hates the way you chew or something. <laughs> you know, your kids are right there for the ages your kids are. Now, the section no. is called why your teen hates how you chew. Yes. Yes. Why your teen hates how you chew. I I could have named 13. I could have named yeah. that section 13. Like circled it, <laughs> like circled the page. I'm gonna ask about this. So okay, yes, let's just define my daughter is turning 14, my son is turning 13. Okay, you are so, so I can, there. So, you I'm are so, so in there. the thick of it. And thank you for recognizing that mm-hmm. because you know sometimes feel like I'm losing it. So please <laughs> give us the lowdown. Oh, I will. Oh, I'm this, so glad. On this fabulous individuation that you talk about. Um, and I know this, but still, and I, I, can we name the chapter that I know this, mm-hmm. but still, and how we aren't supposed to take this personally, even though we really, really do. It yes, hurts. I'm a child development specialist. And yes, I am taking it personally. So please take it away. Oh, I thank you. Okay. So what a love. So let me tell you, Robin, like I, you know, we have similar training and I also had been trained in what separation individuation was, which is of course our very technical terminology. And then as a mom, I was like, holy moly, like no one is describing this in the way that actually describes my kitchen and what is happening in my house. So here's the deal. So right around 13, kids enter the phase of separation individuation, which means they need to develop a separate sense of identity and they need to feel individual and distant from us. Okay. In other words, mom and dad are not cool anymore. Well, we're not cool. And then it gets really detailed how not cool we are. Okay. So here is the deal. When, and the way, the language I use in this section is the idea of kids trying to develop their own brand. And I found that once I struck on that, I was like, this really maps onto what we know well. Okay. So here's your 13 year old. All of a sudden they're like, I got to come up with my own brand, which is really what we could also call separation individuation. So your kid is trying to figure out their own brand. And you also, as a parent, have your brand, right? Whatever. Mm -hmm. our kid has made of us to be. 
So when we as parents do things that do not fit with our child's sense of their emerging brand, given that they are still young, this is a problem because our brand is reflecting on their brand. And so what this looks like is when my older daughter was eighth grade, um, it was time for her eighth grade orientation. And she's like, "Uh, you can't wear that. Oh boy. (laughs) And I was like, go to my closet, figure it out. Because we were still so intertwined in that moment that my whatever dorky dumpy brand was a bad look for, (laughs) you know, the brand that she was trying to show at eighth grade graduate, eighth grade orientation. Okay. So if anything we do does not fit with the brand they see themselves establishing, it is a problem. Now, because they are trying to be individuated, separate, anything we do that actually does fit with the emerging brand is also a problem. Yes. So also in the eighth grade, I remember I was in the kitchen bopping to Beyonce, who I have liked for a very long time. And my daughter came in and she was like, mom, stop. And she was mad. And I was like, okay, Beyonce was moving into her brand. And so the fact Mm -hmm. that I was liking Beyonce was a problem because she's trying to separate her brand off, have a distinct brand. And so now I can't, it it was a problem for me to like Mm -hmm. Beyonce. Okay, so here, Robin, here's where the rubber hits the road. In this height of separation individuation, anything we do that is unlike the emerging brands our teenagers see themselves having is a problem. Anything that we do that is like the emerging brands that our teenagers see themselves having is a problem. Everything we do is a problem. It's just we can't get this right. You can't win. You can't Mm -hmm. win. And like the thing that's so cool is usually by 14, 15 they really start to consolidate a brand. Like they start to have things that are very unique that they do, mm-hmm. very different from us, very separate. And they're just it's just that wonky juncture between like, I'm your little kid and I'm my own person. And truly by 14 or 15, usually kids have had enough time to be serious about sports or serious about, mm-hmm. you know, debate or serious about things that are not us. And then they're like, okay, well, your brand is your problem, but I have my brand. <laughs> And then it yes. all dies down. But that time around 13 is hard for it's, everybody. It's definitely hard. And I mean, because I have the sort of, you know, voice over here that tells me, so I, I this stuff that you have in your book, um, which occasionally is louder than the other one that tells me, you know, that you're sucking this um, <laughs> up. Um but yeah, my daughter is known for her just fashion sense. She's just, yes. just really, really equipped in that area. She's so good about it. And I've watched her go through all kinds of fashion stages, uh, supporting them fully, <laughs> but I can see how people could go, oh my goodness, what's happening here? You know, with whether it's like they going in the goth department and then and then then we're in grunge and then we move over to you know florals and stuff and you're like you know you don't know what's going to happen next sometimes it could be a mix of all of them uh my daughter's the kind of person who like adults will stop and be like wow like i love your boots i love the, wow. this i love that like she is she is yeah. really got it with that and she's recently kind of changed her fashion but it's funny cuz i you hear things like when they're going through certain stages and you they're trying to individuate they will push your button to see how you'll react and i i tell you i it was challenging it would be like uh, when I'm older, I'm going to travel the world and I'm going to be far away from here. I'm going to dye my hair this color. Uh, all I hear is I am going to do every single thing to not be like you, to not look like you, to not be around you. Like, and, and it's, it's really hard. It's not like the choice within itself, but like the compilation of it where you go, do they like me? Every single facet of yourself. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And this is what I'm going to do. And you're like, wow, what did I do? Like it, it's, it can be yeah. really challenging. Well, and it can feel very personal. Right. And yeah. I think, I think that it is really better for everyone. If the framing is kids have to find their own brand and yeah, your daughter and you want is, to support yeah, them that. and you want to support it. And, and what's cool is like, they do. 
And then they tend to relax in terms mm-hmm. of feeling like it's established. But I will say, and this isn't in the book, but it's something I, I've been thinking about, that sort of um, tension around brand comes back at points when brand really matters. So I was thinking, I was remembering in my own adolescence, like going on college tours with my parents, right? And you're sort of on this college tour and you picture like any of these people could be your future classmates and you're visioning your college self. And then like, oh my God, my dad just asked that question. It is the most mortifying, right? Because you're very brand conscious in those moments. And so I think it's, um, it's better for everybody involved. If we just think they're trying to figure out their own brands, there are times when that becomes very, very salient and important Mm -hmm. for them. Some kids figure it out quickly. Some kids take time. Your daughter's moving around, like figuring out. Yes, she's amazing. I mean, I find her boldness and, you know, her figuring things out in her way so fascinating. I I really do. I admire her so immensely that she, you know, puts together these amazing outfits that, you know, that her peers are not wearing because they're literally wearing the exact same thing as each other. And she doesn't. And she is so cool. so cool. I'm like, I couldn't have done that at that age. Yeah. So I admire it. So I know that like the bedroom can be become like a really big deal at that age, having their own space, but also making their space reflective of that brand you're yeah. talking about. So my daughter the other day, um, you know, was putting posters up, like, you know, little posters up in her room. She took immense amount of time doing this so that they were just so we came to realize a little bit later that she was using tape which Mm -hmm. could take the paint off of the walls so we went you know when we were in there because she wanted to show it to us Mm -hmm. she was proud and I was like wow that's really awesome and I know it took a lot of time and tape on the wall like that can take the tape you know, the paint off, we'll need to change the adhesive mm-hmm. of that and explosion, mm-hmm. right? Like all of a sudden she was like really upset, like felt like really frustrated. We were clearly being incredibly annoying, you know? I mean, she was, she took so much time to do this and now we're going to have to, you know, change it or whatever. I was, you don't even have to take it down. Literally I just need to like change the adhesive and nothing worked in this moment. So what's going on and what could have been done differently? I actually think nothing could have been done differently. Like, I just want to say that out of the gate. Thank you. Okay. All right. Stuff like this just happens, right? Okay. Kids get their ideas. They go all in on them. They're enormously proud. And we're like, ah, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) That's not going to work. And then they're super upset. Yes. Um, I... I think it's actually very important to establish that you cannot prevent your kid from being in distress, sometimes a lot of distress. Yeah. Um, you know, I you couldn't have seen this coming. I mean, if she'd asked, <laughs> you would have told her. Yeah. Use this, right? Right. But she didn't ask. Um, and then in terms of what to do, right, when it happens, you and I both know because, well, I'm 52. I don't know how old you are, but like- I'm only a couple of years behind yeah. you. Yeah. Okay, so she had an overreaction, right? What you're I describing. Felt, I felt, yeah. I felt yeah. like that. Like yeah. I, and I felt like I looked back and I was like, I really felt like I was being reasonable. My husband, yeah. you know, was was also in there. His face was definitely he. he as you have a face, like she doesn't like the fi- the face. They know our faces. Yeah, the, the face. Even yeah. though he, what he was saying was similar he had a face and she was really frustrated by that yeah so she was super upset and you know she responded as though it was a crisis and it wasn't yes right and okay but here's the thing neurologically she probably couldn't have helped it super normal right right i mean that they are i mean you said she's almost 14 yeah yeah so if we were to tour her in her brain, if we were to go inside her brain, what we would see is that the emotion centers are really, really powerful. They have mm. been upgraded and her ability to stand back and maintain perspective centers are awaiting their upgrade. So they are comparatively weak. And so for her at 13, she has what I refer to in the book as a very gawky brain. Mm. And when she gets stirred up, when any 13 to 14 year old gets stirred up, 
it very quickly escalates. They cannot necessarily stop it. I actually tell a story in that chapter about um, a friend who sought me out because her 13-year-old daughter was having total meltdowns around things that the kid, even in the moment, was saying, I can't, I don't know why I can't. Oh, it right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's really like painful for them. And so she overreacted, but she can't help it. Like it's right. just how she's built. And so the best thing we do in those moments is we just wait it out, right? We stay don't calm, right? We stay do calm, our best, right? Try to be hard. a steady presence because what happens is they will re-regulate and then their mm. perspective maintaining centers will come back into balance and then they'll be able to be like, okay, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know what happened. And where's the, you know, where's the masking tape or the gummy stuff yeah. you want me to use or whatever. Yeah. Um, what doesn't work in those moments, but of course we always do this as parents and I've done it is where you're like, why are you overreacting? You need to settle down, uh, right? Which only stirs yes. things up more. Right. But I think I think that um, I love that story because it just, it's so, it's so, so garden variety of what it means to raise teenagers, right? That yeah. they're so great and then they can be so reactive and they can be so unpleasant when they're reactive. And the job of adults is to try to serve a containing function, right? Like that's our job. Their emotions are really big and really powerful, sometimes overwhelm them. We don't want to meet them there. It's we just don't... hard when they start to like be me. You know, yeah. you talk about it in your book, like they're, if they're actually saying things that feel mean, like yep. or rude or whatever, it's very hard not to get triggered by that. It is. It is important. And I say this to set a limit, to say like, you can't talk that way. We don't yeah. talk to you that way. But again, the degree to which you can do it as a steady presence, the better. Yes. For because sure. that's how we serve a containing function. And you don't always get it right. And then you nope. apologize to your kid, yes, you know, and, and apologizing to our teenagers is one of the best things we can do as parents when we have right. blown it for a lot of reasons. But I, I actually, I think that's such a perfect story of like a Wednesday. <laughs> I mean, it really, it really, it really is. Um, and I am wondering if, you know, when you know that okay, when you're, when I was just talking about this story, like it's, it's, it is your garden of variety Wednesday, let's move it to maybe not your garden variety Wednesday and something is actually occurring that's causing anxiety. So, um, you know, they're going, this is the age they're going to look at some new schools, right? Yeah. They're going, going to be going to high school. Now you got to go look at different high schools. This is anxiety provoking. We are in moving schools. Okay. So now it's, I don't want to go. I, I don't want to go to that. I don't want to go anywhere. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go. I don't want to go see that. I don't want to go to an open house. I don't want to, I'm not interested in going to look at these schools. Um, in North Carolina, this is actually an issue because uh, there's like magnet schools. There's, there's, there's charter schools. There's this school. There's like a million different types of schools. So sometimes you don't actually go to like the school down the street. It just doesn't work that way. So let's say they're, they're doing something special like that. And they wind up going off the rails like mm -hmm. with that. Now you need to go to yeah. whatever this thing is that you're yeah. needing to go to, whatever this looming thing is, but they're losing it. You know, you still have to go. Yeah. Okay. There's still that boundary like, okay, but we're still going, but they're losing it. So, and then of course they go and everything's fine. And in fact, maybe the best, right. But do you do something before, during, or after mm. that occurs that would be helpful in any way? I like the way you break it down, like the before, during, and after, right? So one thing that is true about teenagers, and this is why I like love writing about teenagers, they're different. Yeah. They, they think they take the world in differently. They engage adults differently than kids do, than adults do. Teenagers need a rationale. Mm. Like teenagers won't just do stuff because you tell them to do stuff. <laughs> and this is like very frustrating if you've really enjoyed parenting your nine-year-old where you're like, go do this. And they're like, okay, okay you know, maybe, yeah. <laughs> and then if they don't, you're like, well, I'll get mad if you don't do this. And they're like, okay, fine. Right. I'll yeah. go do it. Right. And then one day they wake up at around 11 and you're like, go do this. And they're like, why? And you're like, you know, now I'm about to get mad. And they're like, well, then I'm definitely not. You know, I mean, like, you know, and and I think I think that um, it can catch a parent off guard. So, in terms of the before, there needs to be a rationale. 
And your kid deserves a rationale. So if you're going to go look at a whole bunch of schools, kid needs to know why, right? And and they may or may not agree with your reasoning, but it's just not like it used to be where you're like, get in the car. And they're like, all right, you know? Yeah. So, so that's the first thing. They have to understand the why. Then even if you've done a great job of explaining the why, they may be like, yeah, but I still don't want to do it, right? And they may get quite upset. Um, one thing that I really, really hope to accomplish with this book is to make it clear that when a kid is upset, having them talk more about what is wrong is not always the best option. And the reason I say that is that we as a culture sort of default to that. Mm-hmm. Like that when our teenagers are upset, we're like, okay, what's going on? And there's a lot of, you know, for a kid who is willing to be forthcoming, there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of trying to root it out by, you know, talking it to death kind of thing. And sometimes that works great and it's exactly the right thing. But what I do in the book is chapters four and five are two different, I call them playbooks for helping kids manage emotion. Chapter four is the playbook for helping kids manage emotions by expressing what they're feeling. So talking being, you know, kind of the cardinal form of that. Chapter five is helping kids manage emotions by getting them back under control. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that we as a culture really give much credit to. But it's actually a very important part of emotion regulation. In fact, it's half of emotion regulation. Half of it's expressing, the other half is getting it under control. So if you have a kid who's really ramped up and talking isn't helping or talking isn't the right move in the moment, you have an entire repertoire of things you can do. And chapter five is the repertoire. And I'll give several examples that can also address the emotion that do not involve talking more about it. So saying things like, well, what would help you feel better, right? Finding comforts distractions have their place, right? You know, like you're super ramped up. Like, I know you're really upset. Why don't we just go do something else altogether? Let's just not think about it for a little bit. Let's come back and see how it looks later. Helping kids maintain perspective is a strategy. You know, we say, look, I know you really don't want to go to this thing tonight, but like, if we go, how do you think you'll feel about it in a week? Right? Like giving Mm -hmm. kids a chance to like step back or what would you say to your friend right now? If they were in the Mm, same spot? I love that. Yeah. Yep. Things like that. Um, if kids are super anxious, helping them use breathing, like breathing is a strategy that brings feelings under control. Again, the whole section on that is giving kids the rationale. They need the rationale, um, making sure your kids get enough sleep. I mean, if your kid is held together with scotch tape coming apart all the time, mm. number one question, you know, you say like, we're going to this open house and they're like, ah, right. <laughs> the first question I would have is what's the kid sleeping, right? Yeah. Because if they're not getting enough sleep and by enough, I mean, 11 hours for kids who are elementary school, 10 hours for kids who are middle school, nine hours is what we expect for adolescents, like teenagers in high school. Um, You're going to see a really reactive kid. So what I would say is the before is rationale. And then the during is being very, very clear in your mind about what emotion regulation strategies are going to be most useful and being very open to the idea that talking may or may not be the right one. Mm. It's so good. Um, I'll I'll shift to I, I I love where you're taking all of these scenarios because I think they're so useful and you're just applying so many good things. Let's say your teenager, this is a big one, you know, wants to use screens to uh, play video games or do virtual reality each day. Um, but you are seeing the grades are starting to slip. The focus on non-school related screen time has become much more interesting. And, you know, they may be rushing through doing what he has to do in order to do what he wants to do. And, and you mentioned the connection, you know, with all of these screens is, is an issue. And he's, he's getting angry. Um, he's telling you you're wrong. So how do we deal with this emotional situation uh, when your teen is is digging in about maybe screens, because that's a big one, could be something else, that's not going to shame that child um, because that's not helpful, but so that you're becoming the container, you know, helping to shift priorities and helping them to kind of stay on, on the right path. What's, what's your thought about those things? Well, I really like 
to start with something said about like not having to be shameful. Yeah. And in working on this book, my feeling about things like video games and social media, so long as the content is not, you know, destructive, which a lot of it can be, softened. Um, mm. And what I mean by that is distractions actually are a pretty important part of maintaining our emotional equilibrium. We use them all the time and adults do yeah. too. And the way I know I use them, if I'm doing a piece of writing and I'm getting really frustrated in a paragraph, I will often like hop off that page and go like internet shop for five mm-hmm. to 10 minutes. And then that eases my mind enough that I can come back and get back to work on the paragraph. Right. We do this all the time. Kids do it all the time too, right? So they come home from school. Maybe it was a long, hard day. They know they've got a pile of homework. They feel very frustrated by that. Mm-hmm. You know, they if they continue to stare at the pile of homework or even start to work on it in that moment, they could really like blow their top or have a meltdown, mm-hmm. be very, very frustrated. So if a kid's like, I'm going to go play... 25 minutes of video games just to change my mental channel, let mm. this feeling quiet, and then I will tackle my homework. If he keeps it to 20, 25 minutes, like this is genius. Like right. that is effective and cost free, right? I mean, it's really like, you know, not a big deal and is serving what we want, which is the kid's going to turn around and do his homework. So to have these conversations with kids, both to not have shame come into it, but also bluntly to have the conversations be much more effective. I think what we do is we start by acknowledging how well this often works, Mm -hmm. right? That hopping on a video game or looking at their social media can be a source of joy, can be a source of happy distraction, can help them take their minds off of something that's very frustrating. And then really start to think with them about when um, does it start to be diminishing returns, right? Oh. When are you on it so long that now you've really boxed yourself in in terms of how much time you have to do your work and then you're going to be frantic. So rather than saying like, oh my gosh, the video games, like they're getting in the way of your homework, like stop. I wonder if we go instead into that conversation saying, I don't doubt that these actually help you shake off the day and be able to turn it around and do your homework. How long do you think that's really working? Like how long do you need so that you're right. getting the benefit of these and you're not getting the downside of these. Mm. Mm. I think that's genius and and really makes a lot of sense. When social media and phones are a source of emotional upheaval instead of the emotional regulation that you mm-hmm. just brought up, you know, you said in your book one girl said to you I love and hate my phone. And I think every teenager would yeah. tell you that. Yeah. I mean, I feel similarly some of the yeah. time too. Yeah. Same. So how do we help them then to take ownership of that piece, understanding that now it's not a source of joy in yep. this case, and then has diminishing returns. It's elongating the day of emotion, this interaction that they may have been having with other people there, you know, these, these people are arguing or calling names or whatever is happening on there. Mm-hmm. What, what is the step to deal with that piece when they're holding in their hands the thing that is causing emotional strife. Yeah. Oh, such a good, important, you know, topic for us to think through. So in terms of keeping social media in its place, right, which is hopefully making our kids unbalance their lives better, not worse. I think there's a couple of ways to go about it. One is relational and one is like straight up like structural rules we have. So in terms of relational, actually, the first thing I will say actually is a structural thing. Delay, delay, delay. <laughs> like mm-hmm. yeah, social media is complex. Getting kids to think about it at the level of sophistication that's going to serve them well isn't going to happen very, you know, usually before 13 or 14. So the longer you can hold off, the better, because they really do want to be thinking about this in pretty sophisticated ways, because it's some pretty sophisticated stuff, right, right, in terms of its impact on them. And I just want parents to know, A lot of kids don't need social media to stay plugged in socially, even if they may need a phone, right? So I have a 12-year-old who has a phone earlier than I meant, than I had given her older sister a phone, and we gave her a phone so she could have a channel to her older sister who's at college. It is a smartphone. It has no social media and it has no browser. Mm -hmm. It's a texting and talking machine. Same with my Mm 12-year-old. This is great. 
And yeah. like, it will hold them over for a good long while. Cause sometimes parents will say, and I get it. Like, I feel like my kid's becoming socially isolated because they don't have a phone. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you There's can, a solution. there mm-hmm. are steps along the way. So I think just as by way of a structural intervention, like the longer you wait on giving kids social media, the better. And you can often de- delay it. If you're like, you can have a dumb phone that looks like a smartphone. That is a smartphone yeah. that we've dumbed down, right? Kids will go for that. And, and you can go for that for a while. Once social media comes into their lives, like say they're 13, 14, I would hope, you know, at the youngest, then you can also have conversations with them about how it plays in their lives. And I Mm -hmm. think the way we want to do it, and again, it's that curiosity, low shame, high likelihood of actually getting somewhere is to say, like, talk to me about what you love. Like, what is the best part Mm -hmm. of social media? What do adults not understand? How does this work? Because like, we don't get it. Like we really don't. And we need to be honest with them about that. They know that we need to be honest. And then I think having really um, earnestly pursued that line of questioning, you can say, now what doesn't work? Like what, when you, when social Mm -hmm. media sucks, like why, like what's Mm -hmm. the bad stuff? And, and be just curious, not ready to jump in with judgment. And then I think you could say, is there a way that you, or I can help you minimize the stuff that is unpleasant for you or keep it contained so that that's very small if if you know hopefully negligible part of your social media experience like you could have a good social media experience mm-hmm. i think that's the relational side of this the other thing i'll say and i know this sounds very severe but i i really i i, I do believe it i've thought about it a lot it's really better if kids don't have tech in their bedrooms mm-hmm. and Definitely at night when they're supposed to be asleep, I would say as much as possible. Okay, so let me give you three reasons to get tech out of kids' bedrooms, and it gets to all of this. Okay, so number one, it interferes with their sleep. If there's anything you want to do to help your kid have good emotional regulation, they're going to sleep better. Tech in the bedroom messes with sleep. Like we know this 40 ways. Number two, and this is what you're getting at, they need a break. Yeah, they need a break. Like I think about, like, you know, I come home from practice and then, like, it was like me and my folks, right? And like, right. I could talk to one kid on the phone. Maybe we've got three-way calling going. I talked to two kids on the phone, right? But I think there's real value in having some part of the 24-hour cycle where they are just off the clock yeah. with everybody. And then the last reason, this is just from practicing for a long time. If your kid's going to do something really dumb and impulsive on social media, one o'clock in, their, in the morning in their bedroom- Ugh is a high likelihood time. Right? So yes, like, it's like a setup. Too clearly. Yes. A setup. Very good point. So yes. I, I just think that that's a way we can consider trying to put some limits. Around I think it. that's a great idea. So because we're coming to the end of this, give us your top tip. What would you want us to leave with? If there was like one tip, one takeaway about the emotional lives of teens that you hope we take from this, what would it be? What I would say is I think the best gift we can give our teenagers is to do what we can to be a steady presence when they are having a powerful emotional experience. This is really hard. Mm. And I think to make it happen, we have to take really good care of ourselves. We have to be accepting of the idea that they're going to be upset. We have to recognize that they are reading our reaction to get a sense of how upset they need to be. And so part of actually how we help kids dial down emotions is that we actually don't meet them at the full height of that feeling. And we also are better able to do this if we feel like we've got a set of strategies to help that kid feel better. And if if it turns out that we're employing these strategies that you provide in the book and the child is not eating and not sleeping and not you know doing the normal things and they're not able to go to school, then you're going to ask for help. Absolutely. And, and, and so I just, what I want people to know is they have tremendous power to help their kids regulate emotions. I want you to use that power in your home. And then if what you're doing isn't working, or if it's not working well enough, backup is available. Um, But I don't want people to feel frightened of teenage emotionality. It's back exactly where we started. It's a feature, not a bug. We need to be prepared to handle it when we see it. And we're going to see it a lot. So give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book, and the work you're doing? So my website houses it all, which is drlisademore.com. Um, I have a weekly podcast with my colleague, Rena Nainen, called Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting, where we just take 
one question at a time. And it's so fun you know, mm-hmm. because we get to do you so know, vaping and kids who are dealing with unfairness at school and all sorts of just like life of families. And, and I, we love doing it. Um, and then this new book, um, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. Yeah, it's so good. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today. I was so much fun. I could talk to you all day, um, but I won't because you have other things to do. But I'm so excited about this book and the work you're doing. And I just appreciate you coming on and talking with us and have going through some of these really typical scenarios. Thank you. And thank you for having me. All right. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours, so let's discuss them. You can go up onto Facebook and to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or let's chat about it, drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com under Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And Lisa Damore has all those social media set up as well. And all of her links will be in the show notes. So you can follow her as well. And we're going to be going back and forth. I'm going to be taking some of the great things that she said and slapping them on some memes so that you can share them with your followers and you can share them with your friends and family. And when you get the book, you can go, oh, right. I remember when she said this. And if you love this podcast, like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it because it makes such a difference. Those five-star reviews push it to the top, help people to see it and then learn about Dr. Lisa and then all of the great things she's doing, get her book. You know, it's a line of great things. So that's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there and the show notes are up there as well. Look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And don't forget, pre-order my book. It's How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Impossible to forget because you're on the podcast right now. Okay. And guess what? Dr. Lisa Damore is actually quoted in that book and she blurbed that book. So I'm very excited about it. All works together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this, you're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting typically provides a do-over. So if you, you know, lost it last night with your daughter, with your son, with your kid, there's another day. There's another moment. You can apologize and try again. I see you and I'm right there with you as you could hear. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.